Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm really elated to have Christoph Dunkirk uh, today, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, healthcare pricing and what he's doing at Carum Health. Uh, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that if you like these videos, please uh, like, share, and subscribe. Uh, I'm pleased to report that with your support, we have now over 200,000 views across the podcast we've done in only three months. Uh, so apparently we're hitting a good nerve and a good chord in the marketplace for ideas. Uh, with that, uh, let me turn it over to Christoph and welcome, Christoph. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Todd, it's a real, uh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Now, Christoph, you, you started in Germany. Tell us a little about how you got to uh, sunny California and, and, uh, and how you landed here. Yeah, it's a it's a it's actually an interesting story with a lot of um, uh, luck and chance involved. Um, you know, I first came to to North America, actually to Canada, uh, to pursue graduate studies in computer science of all things, and um, then through a, uh, a friend and mentor, uh, um, ended up uh, interviewing with a consulting company. It was called Boozell and Hamilton at the time, uh, and that brought me to New York City uh, to the U.S. for the very first time. You know, I got a work permit and, and worked for them and uh, did that for over 10 years uh, with some stints in between. I went to business school, spent some time in public health and eventually realized that my, my real passion um, was in healthcare and it was in trying to find different solutions um, to some of the challenges in healthcare than what I was able to get to as a consultant. You know, as a consultant, I spend a lot of time with, you know, big companies, you know, big insurance companies, health systems, and other companies. And I saw a wide range of challenges that they were dealing with. And um, I also saw that the, you know, the industry was, um, there were just so many issues that, you know, leads us to the place where we are right now, which makes healthcare very expensive. And I, I realized there was a, you know, a limit to what I could do. So I can talk a bit more about how I ended up joining Carum Health, but how I got to California was that, you know, I visited California once and I fell in love with the sunshine and eventually made my way out here after a few years. So I've been here for um, uh, almost six years now. Very good. And then you went to Stanford? I did. I did. That was my, um, um, my second exposure to California. I think I first visited California. I walked the campus. I was enamored and then applied and they were so generous to, to let me in and then spent two years there. And I said, you know what? I, I really like California. And, and that really cemented my, my decision to, to, to live in California. Indeed. Well, that, it's a fantastic campus. It's very beautiful. Um, as luck would have it, actually, I had the, the honor of advising Stanford Medical uh, back in, in what seems now like 100 years ago. But uh, fantastic people. It was a delight working with them. Very, uh, very clever folks. So let me talk about, let's look kind of pivot a little bit to Karam and broadly describe what Karam is doing and because I think you've created a really innovative approach um, and I want to unpack that a little bit. So kind of introduce Karam and what it's all about and how you're approaching the marketplace. 
Yeah, <clears throat> I think about Carom really as a as a two sided marketplace. Uh, you know, where on the one hand we have the actual purchasers of healthcare, and for our model these are self insured employers, and we can we can unpack that a little bit more. And on the other hand, there are those who actually provide medical care, the providers, and and so our marketplace connects those two entities. Um, with the idea being that if you're an employer, um, you are uh, spending a lot of money on, on healthcare. You know, I just heard, um, uh, uh, you know, that for some employers, this can be the number two or number three cost item, a healthcare yes. cost, and it can be a very, it can be very painful. And, um, and these employers, you know, mo most businesses are used to managing their suppliers well. Right? They think about, well, the, you know, these are suppliers that make a big, a big chunk of my cost. So I want to really find high quality and, and, and low cost, uh, right? That, that's, what, that's what we're always after when we are about suppliers. And, um, and so there is this idea that we can apply that same thinking to healthcare. And so what Carom Health is, is this platform that allows employers to do that. And on the other hand, we work with uh, providers and our belief is that you know, in, a, in an efficient market, uh, providers that are high quality and that um, you know deliver things in a cost-effective way, they should be rewarded with more business. And so that's sort of in a nutshell what we do. Um, under the hood, of course, there's a lot more. There's an amazing patient experience as well, um, which you really need to make the model work. But that's that's in a nutshell uh, what we do. We've been at it for just about seven years, and it is exciting that um, this idea has now taken off. Uh, I think if you talk to any employer, um, they tell you about centers of excellence, which is the, the sort of term, the technical term for what we do. So to be clear then, you're not the insurance company, correct? That's exactly right. We, are, a, we are sort of a, um, you know, a, a different way to organize healthcare um, separate from uh, the traditional insurance companies. So the employer pays you, is that correct? Yeah, and, and I will maybe maybe take 30 seconds to explain the, the, the concept of self-insurance, which is, I just glanced over initially. Uh, what many people don't realize, and Todd, even myself, I was a healthcare consultant for five years until I realized that, was is this concept of self-insurance. Most large employers, pretty much everybody with more than a thousand employees is self-insured. Um, meaning that even though, you know, if you work for a big company, you might have the insurance card it isn't technically insurance. Your employer will actually pay um, uh, for your doctor visits, for your hospital stays at the end of every month. And the quote unquote insurance company is an administrator. And right, so let's, let's, let's hit the pause button there. I want to just make sure that we, we break this down so that people understand. I, just to give you an understanding, Christoph, I've probably talked to two dozen CEOs and I've asked this question. I said, hey, where do you get your insurance? And their response is, well, I get it from Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or Cigna. Uh, or Aetna. And, and I said, well, actually, no, you don't. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you get it from your company. And I said, well, yeah, okay, I get it from my company. And I said, well, where's your company get it from? Well, my company gets it from uh, a broker. Yeah, you're, that's right. And your broker gets it from the carrier. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. And I said, and then how are premiums established? And he said, I don't know. And so I point out that it's the State Department of Insurance in most states in the United States. So there's no correlation. There's no privity of contract in, all, in, tr in reality between the employer and the, the carrier, so that's a thing. And then the second thing is, is that there is a self-insured element to virtually all of the policies. Uh, and what that means is 
that, that the company is paying the first money out, then they're taking the first risk up to a certain level, at which point they seek reinsurance or coverage beyond that level. And so walk through that in terms of some of the levels, just broadly, for, for the companies you serve. Yeah, so the companies we work with, you're, you're absolutely right. They will pay um, most most of the doctor bills and most of the hospital bills at the end of every month. Now, they have a Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or Aetna or Cigna as their administrator, right? Because there's obviously a lot of work involved in making it all happen. But, you know, basically, Blue Cross Blue Shield gets access to a company account, and that's what they pay the doctors from. Now, of course, there is um, um, insurance kicks in at some level. You know, as you can imagine, if somebody has cancer, and it costs a half million dollars to treat them, that could bankrupt the company. So usually, uh, you know, it, this is something that is actually called stop loss uh, right. insurance. So, you know, companies choose different ways in which it works, but generally if it's really expensive, let's say more than $200,000 either in a year or for one single instance, then the insurance kicks in. So you can almost think about as big companies having health insurance with a $200,000 deductible, if you will. Right. So you're doing a fantastic job of simplifying a very complex situation. So thank you for that. So first is you're helping companies reduce the amount that they would be paying for a particular claim or procedure as the case may be, so that the probability that they would need to hit their reinsurance levels, meaning their stop loss, is diminished. So their ultimate costs go down both in terms of the risk they're exposed to and the cost of their secondary insurance, their reinsurance, because they're not tapping into that as frequently. Is that fair to say? That is absolutely fair to say, Todd. And it's, and you know, just to give people an idea for the order of magnitude, right? The, um, I'll have to explain a bit more about healthcare prices. Um, and and is, this is something that just is, is mind boggling when you look into it. Um, in most, in most healthcare markets in the country, um, prices vary widely. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, one gas station, you know, it's $2 and the next station is $2.10, right? The equivalent would be a gallon of gas is $2 at one gas station, and then across town, it's $5. Yeah, we've done research that shows that the price differentiation for exactly the same service can be over 1,000% different. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is not just across hospitals, it is also within the hospital, right? So the negotiated rate that an Aetna has could be two times higher than the negotiated rate that a different insurance carrier has. So it's a very odd market. And, and you know, Todd, generally, um, if a market were efficient, you wouldn't be seeing price differences that are this big, right? You would expect prices to be a bit more in a narrow band. Um, but it's not the case in healthcare. And so that, of course, immediately opens up the opportunity to say, well, you know, why don't you then, you know, you know, you know uh, send people to those healthcare providers where the cost is low? Um, and of course, you know, the objection to that is usually, well, I mean, if it's a low cost, I mean, who knows if they're any good, right? I don't want to send somebody to a doctor that isn't very good at uh, doing the work that they do. Well, the other weird thing about healthcare is that that's not the case. Uh, the um, um, low cost does not mean low quality. And conversely, high cost or high price doesn't mean high quality either. Uh, the two yeah. are completely disconnected from one another. So you, you can, in, in most healthcare markets, you can find providers that are not only low cost, 
but also high quality at the same time. So there's a running joke in the healthcare industry. What, what do you call the guy who graduated from medical school at the bottom of his class? Doctor. <laughs> right? Indeed, indeed. So, but you, I want to make sure we don't go past some of these very complicated concepts too, too quickly. When you, you correctly pointed out that the insurance companies have become more service companies rather than insurance companies, meaning they're no longer spending the time to underwrite the risk in the way that they used to. Uh, and the company is taking the first risk position. So that means that the, the insurance company actually is ambivalent to cost. Right, because they're just paying the bills. Whatever the bill is, is that's what they're paying. Now, the other thing that's important here is now the employer is paying the bills, but there's such an asymmetry in knowledge, meaning an imbalance of knowledge around how what, what prices really ought to be. The, the person who's the head of HR doesn't really need to get, know, know how to go into that. And so there's a desperate need for somebody to come in like Carom Health to say, hey, we know a little bit about costs. We know about this supply chain in specifically. You know, we, we care or may not know a whole lot about how a motherboard's created for a computer, but we know a lot about how healthcare works. So we can be your supply chain manager, your cost containment partner for these kinds of procedures and provide to you a simplified pricing mechanism in the form of a bundle that includes everything in the element. Uh, I wrote in my book, uh, the example I was kind of chastised a little bit that uh, it was very a male uh, example, but I said, you know, today, uh, most of us don't know how to change the oil in our car. Mm -hmm. So we take it to the dealership and we compare price and, and there versus the Jiffy Lube across the street. And we make a risk-based analysis as to whether or not we want to take it to the dealership versus the Jiffy Lube. But we never question whether or not we're going to get a subsequent bill from the oil delivery company and then another one from the oil installation guy and another one from the oil uh, disposal guy uh, in addition to the, the charge from the dealership. What you've done, as I understand it, is you've created a bundle that says it's all one price. We're gonna take all these, the anesthesia fee, the surgical fee, uh, the physician fee the, and the, uh, the facility fee and we're gonna put that all into one price and that's what we're going to charge you. And by the way, because these things are all aggregated, we're going to be able to charge you less for the procedure than otherwise. Is that fair to say? Absolutely fair to say, Todd. And you, you point out a really uh, another challenge in healthcare, right? In addition to you know, prices varying wildly, prices and quality not being correlated to one another. The third problem is that the way we pay for healthcare is part by part, right? That, that's what people call the, the fee-for-service model. And, and that is a lot of incentive problems. Right, you know, if you're if you're paying, uh, you know, we just had some work done on the house, uh, and you know, with the contractors, we negotiated the fixed price, because if you're paying a contractor time and material, what incentive do they have to complete the work quickly? They don't, right? It's much better for them to take their time and just charge you more for the time that they take, and that is unfortunately how healthcare works. And so you're exactly right. The this idea of bundling is another core element to our value proposition, which is we take all the pieces and put them together and, and ask the provider to give us a fixed price for all the things they need to do. And what that does, it now creates an incentive for the provider the same way it does for my home contractor to be more efficient, 
you know, to try to get it done more quickly, to really look at the cost and think about, isn't there a better way of doing this? Do I really need to keep the patient in this expensive room or do I really need to do this expensive test? Does it actually make a difference for the outcome for the patient? So that's another really important uh, concept. The other important concept in those bundles is also um, they come with a warranty, uh, Todd. And that's actually really important because, you know, if you're, you know, if, to, let's take the home contractor example, right? If I just make a fixed price contract with them, um, you know, they have incentives to cut corners, right? Maybe they'll use shabbier wood. You know, they only use half the number of nails that they should be using in the framing. And then of course the house might, might, might collapse. And that's why in those instances, it always comes with a warranty on good workmanship, right? If the house collapses, the contractor's on the hook to fix it. And that's what we bring to our bundles as well. So the providers take accountability for the full cost of the episode. And they have an incentive to find efficiencies and deliver the same service better, but there's also a warranty. So the provider on our model is on the hook if complications arise. So provider is disincentivized from, from um, cutting, co uh, cutting costs in a way that cuts corners. And so the result is that there's this laser focus on the cost of care delivery really for the first time with the provider. And there's the warranty to make sure that they also uh, get, the, get the level of outcomes that we want. So how do you, you're spot on, how do you go to market? Do you contract or do you contact or does your chief revenue officer contact uh, the self-insured company directly or do you work through brokers or how do you engage with your clients? It's actually all of, yeah, it's actually all of the above, um, uh, Todd. You know, in this market, um, some employers come to us through the direct channel, right? Where we reach out to them or they might reach out to us. Um, and then the brokers uh, play a role. Also benefit consultants. Sure. Um, it's, you know, there's this whole business of benefit consultants. Those are, you know, the Aon, Willis Towers, Watsons, Mercers, et cetera, of the world. Um, they, I think, really sprung up because healthcare is complicated. And you mentioned in your, in your intro statement that there's the, the benefits leader, right? That has to understand this very complex field. So there's this whole industry of benefit consultants. And so they are good partners uh, to us as well in reaching out to these, uh, to these employers. So what kind of costs do you average saving for your clients? Um, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the amazing part. We actually had uh, the Rand Corporation take a look at that. Right, so they, uh, they kicked the tires, they looked at our data and they published a peer reviewed study in health affairs uh, a couple of months ago. And they find uh, uh, that the unit cost uh, can go down as much as 45%, meaning a procedure wow. that might cost you $50,000 before Karen might go for 26, 27,000 with Karen. That's, that's an astonishing savings. And and here's the thing that nobody really understands. I, I come from a, of a private equity background, right? So, uh, you know, my, my model is we research social ills. Uh, we have something called the Center for Impact Indices, which then quantifies the social ill. And then we have a, an investment platform where we invest in companies who we hope will, and we expect will help solve or diminish the social ill. So the first one we have is healthcare. Uh, we created the first ever healthcare inequality index. The Center for Impact Indices then quantifies the healthcare inequality. And then we have an investment platform that measures this. So would it, would, it would not surprise you to know that uh, when I look at cost savings, the number that I see is not a one-for-one -one 
benefit. In other words, when a new dollar of EBITDA falls to the bottom line, um, guys in my position don't look at that as a dollar. We look at that as a dollar times the multiple to get a share price. So uh, to give an example, I, I haven't looked at this recently, but you, you, when I last looked at it, United was trading at a multiple of 16 to one. So 16 times trailing 12 uh, earnings was their multiple for the share price. So if you just use that multiple for the company, for the dollars that you're saving for your clients, uh, the CEOs really ought to be just laser focused on this because as you correctly pointed out in the beginning, you know, the healthcare benefits cost can be the second or third largest item on their P&L, uh, especially for services companies, which is roughly 83 or 84% of our economy today. Uh, you know, they ought to be laser focused on this because the, the return to shareholders is absolutely fantastic in terms of share price. So are you having those kinds of conversations with CEOs also? So that's, um, that's oftentimes where the conversation goes. And, and Todd, I would say up until maybe two years ago, the conversation actually started with, with the benefits leaders. Um, and then they, of course, had to make their case to the CEO, to the CFO. And, and, and that's exactly the discussion we had. What has been happening for the last year or, or year and a half, especially with, with COVID, there has been a lot more attention from the C-suite on healthcare in general. And with that also came an attention to, well, how much are we spending on healthcare and why are we spending so much? Why is it going up 4% or 4.5% per capita every year? And so now we are seeing the C-suite actually asking for better solution in the benefit space. But yeah, the return on investment um, is, is very clear and it's, and it's huge, right? Our solution, I think even in a very bare bones setting has a, has a four to one ROI and you can push this up to 20 or 30 to one uh, ROI. So it's, it's an, to me, it's an absolute no-brainer. And if I well, look at if I look yeah. at our pipeline, that there's, there's many others who, who would agree. But especially given that there's no startup costs, right? You know, you have to invest. Cap you don't have to invest capital per se, other than the notification of your employees that there's a new way to go about things, uh, which the communications internally is just a function of the HR department anyway, who ought to be communicating how to handle these kinds of issues and internally and and through the uh, their benefits programs. So we've talked so far about how you go to market, how you reach your customer, the savings you can create for your customers, um, how you bundle pricing and how you manage the process. We, we, the only thing we haven't talked about yet is how you engage the providers. So how do you reach out to them? How does a provider or a facility become a part of uh, your portfolio so that you can recommend uh, accordingly. Tell, tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah. So, you know, the outrage is actually sometimes comes from us and sometimes comes from the provider. Um, we've made quite a bit of waves already on the provider side. So now they start calling us, emailing us. Um, you know, however we, you know, a, a provider really comes to us. What is important for us is one that we kick the tires on the quality. We actually have a very involved quality evaluation process where we will ask for information that in some cases nobody's ever asked uh, the provider about. And I can tell you that some health systems um, can be somewhat uncomfortable when we ask them for these 50 plus data points about, you know, how many issues have you had? And, and, this, and even more so, every specific doctor tell us how many issues they've had and let us evaluate if that is good enough for us to, to come on our platform. So that's the process we go through. Um, you know, we obviously visit them. We ask a lot of questions. We walk the halls pre-COVID. We walk them virtually right now. We'll walk them 
uh, post-COVID again. And, and then it's really about um, getting into the discussion with the provider about the bundle. Um, you know, that is um, still somewhat of a new concept. Um, you know, thankfully the government did push this a lot in, in Medicare. And so there is at least some awareness on the provider side about bundles and how you bring all the components you mentioned together, right? How do you make sure that the surgeon talks to the anesthesiologist? How do they sit down with the, with the hospital or the ambulatory surgical center leadership and figure out what are all the things that we actually spend money on um, uh, for these procedures, Todd? That is, that is sometimes a non-trivial question for them to answer. And those of us who are on the receiving end as patients, we know the answer because we get the stack of bills. So now they actually have to, ahead of time, figure out who is everybody that will touch the patient. And so there's a lot of conversation with them around, uh, you know, making sure they can pull all of these different things together and then come to the table to us and say, well, Karam, we think for us to deliver this procedure, um, it's going to cost us X. This is the price that we want from you for that. And then, you know, like in every business transaction, we have a perspective, uh, what the price should be based on the ROI that employers are looking for. And then we sit down and talk about it and see if we can find a point where it makes business sense for the provider to engage with us and it delivers value to the employer and makes sense for the employer to engage. So you, you quickly talked about the data, the research you do, the diligence you do on your providers. Um, I wanna unpack that just a little bit because what most people are unaware is that the credentialing process at a hospital uh, is, is very unique and very interesting uh, and very much kind of good old boy uh, closed network. And what I mean by that is that's not a gender reference per se. It's more like uh, if you're a doctor, you're kind of in the club and lots of doctors will only trust other doctors uh, and not trust anybody other than a doctor. But what happens is even if there are complications and even if there are errors in performance, it's very, very rare that a doctor would lose their credentials once they have become credentialed because it's you know, a handful of his or her peers that are making that determination. And so the information you're collecting is, is unique in that nobody else is doing that kind of homework with that kind of independent, objective, third-party view to characterize the quality of the work in a way that would be acceptable to uh, the public at large. The, the credentialing offices inside of a hospital uh, tend to be very, very reluctant to take away somebody's credentials, even if they've done really bad things. So that's, I, I applaud that. The second thing is, and this is really, uh, this is really amazing. Many, if not most companies today, require background checks for new incoming employees and more often than not require drug testing. Most hospitals do not drug test physicians and even more astonishingly do not drug, drug test surgeons. So here you have a group that has virtually unlimited access to the strongest of all narcotics, uh, and yet there is no restriction whatsoever on uh, the ability of those surgeons to go in and perform surgery with no drug testing at all. I mean, there, that is to me uh, really, really surprising. Now, in your experience, I mean, is that a question you guys ask, or is that something you guys have to deal with in one way or another, or does that come up in your survey? 
Um, I mean, it's, it's one element among many, uh, Todd, right? Like this is obviously an important aspect, um, but it's actually, as I look across the types of questions that we ask, um, you know, there are so many things that you need to be concerned about, right? So drug use is, is certainly one of them, but there's other elements that we, that we are concerned about too. You know, it's things like how many patients develop a problem um, after getting surgery from the surgeon. This is information it's incredibly hard to get to. Uh, I think there's only two or three places in the country where you can find that information. And, and so that's what we ask for, uh, right? It's like, well, you know, if the surgery does, you know, if this, the surgeon cuts up, does, does the wound heal properly, right? Things as basic as that is something that is not generally looked at. And, and in some cases, we hear from those providers we work with, wow, Kim, this is the first time somebody's ever asked us this question. Somebody's ever challenged us externally on, on how good we really are beyond, beyond our brand reputation. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is surprising um, that, you know, if, you know, if, if, if you know, I, I come back to the example of how companies manage other suppliers. You know, if you're a Walmart or you, you're United Airlines, right, you will pressure, if you're Apple, right, you will pressure test your vendors, you will ask detailed, detailed questions. And then you send your, your employees to have uh, invasive surgeries and you basically cross your fingers and hope for the best as opposed to doing your due diligence. And so our role is really the one to perform uh, a very detailed level of due diligence, looking at uh, really the outcomes, right? How is, how is the doctor performing? Um, and then of course, you know, as, as you well know, as a finance professional, right? And historic performance doesn't necessarily correlate with future performance, right? So we, we look at that historical quality data and then we have that bundle with that warranty in place. And that then ensures that the provider has incentive to perform as good or better in the future um, uh, as they have in the past. And I will say that we're very selective and the hospitals and the physician groups we work with, they don't necessarily like that. You know, um, even, even the top institutions in the country, they don't get a blank check from us, right? They, they have to present their surgeons to us and we uh, pick a few of them and, and, and some we don't. Um, we also review this on an annual basis. And from time to time, um, uh, surgeons leave our program because you know, the quality isn't there anymore. Um, you know, issues happen. And uh, so in our view, this is not a lifetime certification. This is, a, this is a something that you earn again, over and over again, every single year. Very good. Well, Christoph, we've gone through a lot of stuff in the last uh, 30 minutes or so. You've done an absolutely elegant job of uh, really simplifying and explaining very, very clearly to the audience uh, this very complicated set of issues. Um, the, the people who watch this podcast most often are going to be in the C-suite. Uh, so how can somebody from a C-suite reach you and, or somebody from your firm and, and really engage in a thoughtful conversation on how to, how to engage with Karam to uh, perhaps employ your services accordingly? Yeah, the best way is probably just to go through our website. It's uh, karamhealth.com, C-A-R-R-U-M health. Uh, dot com and contact us and then we can have our team of specialists work with them and figure out if this is something that works and and delivers value ROI for their specific circumstances well Christoph, thanks so much for your time today i hope you'll come back and we can take another snapshot of what's going on in the industry from your perspective uh in a, in a few months time absolutely todd it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for having me thank you 
Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.